Hey, everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Scott Jeffrey Miller. Who's that? I'm so glad you asked. Capping a 25-year career, that's a quarter century, as the kids say, where he served as a chief marketing officer and executive vice president of business development, Scott Jeffrey Miller currently serves as Franklin Covey's senior advisor on thought leadership, leading the strategy and development of the firm's Speakers Bureau, as well as the publication of podcasts, webcasts, and best-selling books. Franklin Covey, by the way, is the super team of Benjamin Franklin and Stephen Covey. That's a pretty, that's like when LeBron played with Dwayne Wade. That's a pretty good team. Scott also hosts On Leadership with Scott Miller, the world's largest and fastest growing leadership podcast, reaching more than 6 million people weekly. That is pretty close to my numbers right now um, for all it takes as a goal. We're like at 5.9-ish. It's, we're on the edge. In addition, Scott authors a leadership column for Inc.com and is the best-selling author of the Mess to Success series. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. It's super fun. Scott is a super interesting guy. But first, a quick message from the sponsor of today's podcast. You've heard me say it before. Goals are not easy, but they are simple. Personal goals are hard enough. But if you're leading the team, that's even harder. Good luck keeping everyone on track and focused. Did you know that 92% of people don't achieve their goals? 92% according to our University of Scranton study. That means only 8% of people actually finish what they start. The good news, there's some hope. And I'm excited to share it with you today. You've got to check out Leader. It's the first ever people development software that helps you and your team set clear goals and track progress over time. It's called Leader. L-E-A-D-R. With Leader, you can simplify goals for your team. You can add collaborators across the organization. You can include clear action items and updates throughout the week, all in one easy-to-use platform. Imagine what your team could accomplish if every employee was engaged and growing with clear goals and consistent development at every level. Contact Leader to set up a custom demo for your team today at leadr.com. That's L-E-A-D-R.com. More than 600 organizations are already using Leader to track goals and develop their teams. And use promo code ACUFF, that's A-C-U-F-F, for 20% off when you book a demo at leader.com. All right, let's jump into today's interview with Scott Miller. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait. I've been on your podcast before. It's a real honor to host you on mine. John Acuff, thank you, man, for the spotlight and the platform. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited. I'd like to jump in with some hard-hitting questions right away. So number one, what are your thoughts on the Brussels Griffin breed of dog? Um, Where do you land? What I didn't know is that these dogs are actually bred to like ferret out rats and mice in horse stalls. Mm-hmm. And if I had I known that, I would have bought two of them because they're the busiest body dogs ever of mankind. So as you know, we've had two of these. One was named Oliver, who passed away um, with our help gently about four months ago, very traumatic. And we have now um, not replaced him, but added to our family a new Brussels Griffon called Wilson, who is as interesting and interested 
in life as Oliver was. So, but do you dogs. guys live in a horse stall? Because that would make complete. Like if you were in a horse stall, I could see that being perfect. But I don't. I've never been to your house. So is it a horse stall? We do live in Utah, so it's possible. <laughs> no, we're downtown Salt Lake, not Harley. But my wife Stephanie just loves this breed of dog. For those of you who yeah. are wondering, what the heck? This is the breed of dog that um, Jack Nicholson put down the trash chute in the famous movie As Good As It Gets. And these dogs look like Civil War generals, right? But they're cute. Yeah, they look like a Civil War general slash Ewok. Like it's no one's ever compared those two items in life. And you are right. But I bring that up because you put that that's on the homepage of your website, which I think is so indicative of how fun you are. Right out of the gate, I was like, oh, and, and I appreciate you didn't correct how I said Griffin. You didn't say, you said it right when you said, you said Griffon. Like, you know it's a fancy breed it's when it comes to- It's a sophistication in me, John, right? <laughs> yeah, I went yeah. to Cotillion. I went to Cotillion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't know. Griffon. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, second question. How many pairs of glasses do you own? Uh, every color they make. So probably 60. Okay, is there a- Here's the key. I just buy the frames- and then I have three pair of lenses, and they, they're all the same frame. So I just pop the lenses in and out. They're all the uh, same size glass. It's just every – so glasses cost 40 bucks. The lenses yeah. are like 300 So I get the benefit of 70 pair, but only the cost of three sets of lenses. That is brilliant. And, and it's good that – I think people were probably going to be like, this guy owns 200 grand worth of glasses. Not hardly. The, the interview better be about you know being a hoarder. Um, that is amazing. It's part of your signature look. It's part of what makes you so fun. I also think you're a bit of a book writing machine. I would apply the word prolific to you. I got a big box of your books just the other day, which I was so thrilled to um, get. I have one on my desk right now. Um, the most recent Master Mentors. There's a new one coming out in the fall. There's one coming out in 2023 about communication that we'll talk a little about. Hey, stop there, John. I have a great idea. Let's get you back on our podcast. And maybe we would feature you in Master Mentors Volume 3 with Mel Robbins and James Clear and Deepak Chopra. Let's do that. I, I'm in. I'm You're 100% in. in. Thank you, I'm, sir. Count, count me in. What would you say has helped you push through the barrier of not writing a book? Because it's way easier to not write a book than it is to write a book. And a lot of people have that goal. According to New York Times, 81% of Americans want to write a book. According to Amazon statistics, less than 1% do every year. What's helped you push through that goal? Like the name of the podcast is All It Takes is a Goal, so I'll definitely be nerding out with you on some goal questions. You know, a mutual colleague and friend of ours, Jane, uh, Rachel Hollis, once told me on her podcast that most people don't fear failure. They fear having other people see them fail. And that kind of had a profound impact on me. And I actually don't mind failing because I think, for me, everything is a lesson in life. I, I Honestly, I believe that pragmatically. So I think everything is an iteration. I like turning something or turning nothing into something. I like producing things. And not everybody's going to love my work. You know, obviously there's 7.8 billion people in the world. And last time I checked, my royalty statement didn't reflect that. So yeah. some people don't like what I read. But I found my niche. I found people who I think have, I have something to, to value to add. So I write to them. I don't try to write to everyone. I'm very clear about who my target market is. So what I do is I'm a visual learner. I take my books and I actually write them up on my wall, post-it notes and folders and notes, and I move them all around. And I get a visual spatial orientation for how they fit together. What's a thought versus a paragraph? What's a paragraph versus a chapter? And I move it all around. And I find that when I teach that concept to a lot of potential authors, get your ideas out of your head. 
get them visually on a table, on a wall, on the floor, whatever it is. It helps you make sense of it. I'm a, I'm a strong believer that most of us are visual learners. I, I love that in part because I have my my next book on the wall right there. I'm showing you with the video. And I, I have huge post-it notes that I do the same, same exact process. I own on. your calendar, by the way. Oh, great. I mean, great. when I saw your calendar for sale a couple of years ago, I bought one. And it's on my wall at my house. You have a great calendar that really helped me to visualize what my strategic plan was with my books, my podcast, my radio programs, things like that. You create some great tools to help people. I appreciate that. How long would you, if you had to guesstimate, and you, obviously no exact number, about how long does it take you to write a book? Have you three ever months. thought of- About three, three months. months. Yeah, three it's months. interesting. I interviewed Jen Sincero. You know, you are a badass author. Oh, yeah. Phenomenal interview. And she writes a book in about two weeks. She takes like nine months off, and she hikes and she thinks and she exercises, and comes home and she writes her books in two weeks. It's amazing. Just wow. nonstop. I know. And then she's done for like another year. For me, I'm a very disciplined person. I wake up at four o'clock every morning, seven days a week. And I write my ink column, my blog from about four to five. And I write my books from about five to 6.30 when my boys wake up. Like you, I'm a dad of three yep. boys. So it takes me between three and four months to write a book, recognizing that I tend to write books and take all my chapters to the one yard line, kind of a football metaphor. Yep. And then I have an editor kind of, you know, run it over or kick it over or run it back for me. So um, I'd say about three to four months per book. And my books are not good to great. They're not built to last. It's not war and peace. My books are easy and breezy and pithy, somewhat like yours, yep. but it works for my audience. I, I love that. How long have you been on that schedule? Were you a goal guy in high school? Like you were an Eagle Scout yeah. and you were getting up early? Yeah, not an Eagle Scout, but I was student body president by high school. And in high school, I got up in the mornings early and I worked at a bakery washing pans, washing like six foot stacks of bakery pans before every school. Morning, before school. And then I would like change, put on my penny loafers, my, khaki, my khakis, my Ralph Lauren shirt, take my motor scooter and do the announcements at 7.50 in the morning. And I was a very early riser. And then of course, all through college. So I've always been an early riser. I don't love getting up at 4 a.m. I'm not sick. Um, <laughs> but I find that what I've learned from Dan Pink is that yeah. all of us have this circadian rhythm, right? We have our, our peak and our trough and our recovery. And Dan Pink didn't invent this idea, but he, but he popularized it in his book, When, about timing. And I know that my peak is 4 a.m. to about 11 a.m. every day. Yeah. And then I move into a trough to about one o'clock or so. I don't go asleep. I just, you know, it's not my high energy. I have a bit of a rebound to about five. And I'm in bed every night at 9.30. I'm asleep by 9.45. I need seven I, hours and I get up at four. Yeah, so you're doing that seven days a week. There's no like, and then on Saturday, I sleep till eight. <laughs> no. Yeah, because you're, you, you're in a rhythm. You're in I a am, zone. I am, I'm you writing, you know, two to three books a year and columns and blogs. Yeah. And like you, you know, I'm a parent and a spouse and I got snow to shovel and, you yeah. know, people to help out and people ask me to help them. So, I mean, listen, you know, did I sleep till five o'clock two days ago? Of course. You know, has yeah. there been a Saturday where I woke up at, you know, six o'clock? No. <laughs> but I would be willing to. I just, you know, I'm on a yeah. rhythm and I wake up now naturally that way. Do you see that consistently? Um, or what are some things you see consistently in the people you interview? Because I think that comes through in Master Mentors. But I think you've got part of what's great about your life is you've got a front row seat to some of the smartest people in the world. And you can already hear that in some of your answers. So what are some things that you see consistently among high performers? I love that you asked this question, John. 
I was asked this question on a podcast a few months ago, and the guy did not, the host did not like my answer. In fact, he so disliked it, he pushed it about 20 minutes on me. But I'm going to repeat the same answer. The first is the things that I see about all these amazing guests, whether they're Jack Canfield or John Gray or, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin or whoever it is, General McChrystal, Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Liz Wiseman, you name it, they all have an abundance mentality. Dave Hollis, they all want to help other people. Not self-servingly, they just, they truly want to help other people to help them learn from their own lessons, to be vulnerable. They all have an abundance mindset versus a scarce mindset. They believe that if I help you, that doesn't mean there's less for me. It means there's more for me in life. That's the first thing. The second is they're just hard workers. And this is the answer I gave to the podcast hosted, did not like it. You know, there's a reason why John Maxwell is doing, you know, 10 speeches and writing four books a month and, 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 and podcast. I mean, John Maxwell has more money than God. He does not need yeah. to give one more podcast interview or sell one more book, right? But yeah. the guy has an abundance mentality and he feels like he has a mission, a calling to help and serve and learn and to share. And the guy did not like my, inter- my, my answer. He said, so you're telling me that the key to my dad's success was to just sell more vegetables out of his truck? That he worked 40 years? And I said, listen, I never met your dad. I said, I don't know if your dad was selling the right vegetables or had the right truck or the right corner, the right marketing or the right customers. I don't know. But what I'm telling you is John Gray and Jack Canfield, they don't need to do anymore, but they do because they love and they want to serve and they, and they believe they have more to offer and more to learn. And that is the red thread between all of our guests is they have an indefatigable work ethic. And they have an abundance mentality. And I still think there's a place for both of those in 2022 that can set you apart from your competition. And I think that what's interesting is as some bars get lower, one of the things I like to say is goals are hard because Netflix is easy. Goals are hard because Amazon Prime is easy. Sometimes with our modern distractions, our distraction technology is scaled faster than our ability to focus. And as that happens, it's easier and easier to not write a book. Um, it's easier and easier to not do the things. There is, there's no such thing as overnight success. Now, there is overnight fame, and it's often ill-gotten or fleeting. Yeah. But you ask Seth Godin where he started. Most people don't know. He was like this sort of awkward Jewish boy from New York City who was like writing gaming articles. He was like a gamer. He was writing a gaming magazine, right? Look at him now. Ask Rachel Hollis how many people bought Party Girl. Or, you know, yeah. uh, her first five books. No one bought them. And then, of course, mm-hmm. Girl, Wash Your Face, right? And yeah. I, you see this in, in, in common across people that, you know, they spent 20 years, like me, 30 years behind the scenes working and building and learning and making mistakes, starting and finishing. And then all that knowledge came together, all that experience. That's a commonality. All the, Matthew McConaughey, right? Look at how many, how many movies he auditioned for you never saw. Mm-hmm. Ryan Serhant, the famous, you know, star of um, million dollar listings on Bravo. Now a huge, you know, he, he started as a hand model, right? He couldn't even afford like an apartment in New York City. Just didn't even have the face, just hands. Just That's it, just the hands, handsome just guy. Just limbs, he was a limb model. I mean, he's very handsome. That tells you how cutthroat modeling is. I know. I mean, he's not disfigured in the face. He's got a very handsome face, I'd like to say, but apparently his hands, super sexy. That is so, that is so funny. Okay, so I, I love the abundance mentality. I love the work ethic because I still haven't found a shortcut to writing a book. Uh, I still have to write a lot. I still have to sit down a lot. I still have to do a lot of the work. 
And the, the John Maxwell thing's interesting because I saw Dolly Parton do a concert. I, I was doing an event and she was on the event and she did a 75-minute concert that started at 10 p.m. And it was full, like, it was 22-year-old Dolly strength. Like, she was amazing. And I think you're right. So how do people... How do people develop a mission that keeps them going past the temporary goals of, okay, if I make this certain amount of money, then I'll, because then you make the money and you have nowhere to go, or then you accomplish the thing. How do you stay in motion for a goal that's bigger than just a season of your life? You know, this may sound trite, but my 25 years in the Franklin Covey company, where I served as the chief marketing officer for a decade, obviously our company was founded by Dr. Stephen R. Covey of the author the author of you know, many books, including The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Dr. Covey talked about your personal mission statement. In fact, that's the most trafficked page on Franklin Covey's website is missionstatementbuilder.com. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Covey, who's passed now, once gave a speech, John, at our annual conference. He talked about the power of having a mission statement. Now, I was back in my 30s. John, I was married when I was 41. So if you were asking a 35-year-old Scott Miller, what was your mission in life? I would have said, I don't know more champagne, more trips to Italy, more tennis. I have mm -hmm. no idea. I'm a single guy in my 30s. Mm -hmm. But then our other founder, Hiram Smith, who was really kind of the modern father of time management, invented the Franklin Planner and the Franklin Planning Process, he talked about the power of knowing your values. And that hit me, knowing your values. Here I am, 35 years old, and I don't know my values. So I went home <laughs> to my loft in Chicago, and for over several days, I wrote out my values. Phil Pal, P-H-I-L-P-A-L. Purpose, health, integrity, loyalty, positivity, abundance, and learning. Phil Pal. And I wrote out my values, and now those like guide my entire life. Every decision I make, whether I am excited or fatigued, whether I am at the front or the end, whether I'm starting or finishing, I connect back to my values, and they haven't changed. By the way, I didn't create my values so that you would like them. I don't give a crap what you think about my values. They're my values. Yeah. Yeah. But I know them, and they're not convenient. They're not politically expedient. And everything I do and say and say yes to or say no to is now aligned with my personal values. But that was half of it. Then I came to realize that so many people, too many people, were taking their careers accidentally, serendipitously in directions. You know, one more dollar an hour here, or one more percent commission there, or beer on tap on Thursdays. And they were just kind of bouncing around, whether it was entrepreneurial ventures or whether it was corporate careers or as owners, they weren't deliberate enough. And so I started to realize, in addition to a set of personal values, John, you've got to have a set of professional values. And they're often different. And you've got to write out both of them because sometimes they are in conflict. And you can't know if they're in conflict if you don't write them down and look at them and know when might you want to lean one way or the other. So I would argue, I think, I think, it's very liberating to have articulated out your personal and professional values in their separate lists and to know when are they in sync? When are they not? When should you double down? When should you perhaps drop one and add another one in? It's been a powerful lesson for me. I think that's fascinating. I definitely have some follow-up questions with that. What I think part of the power of that to me is you don't have to approach every situation like it's the first time you've approached it. When you have a value, it creates a system almost where you go. So like one of my professional values is I don't do new podcasts. When somebody says, I'm starting a brand new podcast, I'd like you to be episode one or two. I say, no, let's talk in a year because they might, they're probably going to quit. 
They definitely have the smallest audience and they're not good at podcasting yet. Now, if it's a friend or a connection or something I'm trying to really super serve, I'll do the podcast. But for the most part, I've just said, wow, I've done that a number of times and I felt like it wasn't a valuable use of my time. It's not that I'll say no forever, but let's, you know, and that little thing has saved me so many awkward conversations of, oh, should I do this? And him and and Heim, if I'm listening to this and the values thing just blew my mind. When you say you went back to your apartment or loft in Chicago, did you write down 50 and narrow? Did you just give yourself freedom and then kind of winnowed? Um, delighted you asked that as well. I made a commitment to myself that unlike every other personality test or survey or questionnaire or strengths finder or Myers-Briggs, I wasn't going to try to answer the questions on how I thought I should answer them. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to get a good score wasn't trying to impress John Acuff at a cocktail party. I said, I'm going to write down what is what I believe, what is true about me, what, what accurately represents what I think I want to be in life. And so I wrote down some things and I thought, you know, you can't have 12 values. How would you possibly live in alignment with those? Maybe you can. Probably three or four is probably more likely. But I came up with seven because I thought they were really valuable. They represented things I was passionate about, areas I struggled with, you know, whether it was character or competence or, you know, parts of my life that I wasn't proud of. There's not many of those, but there's a few we all have them. And I, so I, I winnowed them down to seven and then just serendipitously, I forced them into an acronym so that I would memorize them. Phil, pal, isn't even a word. But here I am, you know, 18 years later, and I can tell you exactly what they are in order. Purpose is one. Which is why on, you know, I, I'm Catholic and my wife and I are raising our three sons in that faith. My wife is not of that faith. But for us, uh, you know, Sunday is all about that. And we organize and note. We don't have sleepovers on Saturday night and we don't go skiing on Sunday morning and we don't have basketball teams that practice. Now, we recreate on Sundays and we do fun things. But, um, but, but serving our purpose is in unnegotiable for us. Health, integrity, loyalty positivity, abundance, and learning. And so there was a broader category, but my boys can tell you their dad's values. And uh, when they start moaning on Saturday night, when we're writing out our tithing checks or we're talking mm-hmm. about whether they're going to be ultra serving tomorrow or not, I say, would you like a lesson in Phil Powell? And they all groan and they go <laughs> back to their rooms. Yeah, that, that is so good. Okay, so what, what else do you say no to? Because you're very deliberate with your yes, but I think you're very deliberate with your no. What are some things that you go, you know what? Here, you said you just said Sunday's uh, not a negotiable for you. So what are some, whether it's an opportunity um, that you said, you know what, those are the kind of things I say no to in order that I can say yes to all these things that matter. John, this is a struggle for me. So I think your audience will identify with this. I, you know, listen, some people call me ferocious. You know, I was, a, you know, an officer in a public company for a long time, 100 quarters of SEC investor growth, 100 quarters, right? I know how to meet goals. I know how to say no. But it's difficult for me right now because abundance is one of my values, and I'm yeah. very grateful for everyone like you and others that have poured into me and endorsed my books and come to my podcast. So I feel a level of, you called it super service. I love that word that it was not lost on me, super service. I, I have difficulty saying no because like everyone, I want to be wanted. I want to be validated. And I was just talking earlier today I'm, I write a column for Inc. Magazine. Up until recently, I hosted a radio program for iHeartRadio. I have four books out there. I have three books launching next year. I host the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. I launched a new podcast called C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. 
I have a career coaching program. I have probably four keynote inquiries this week. I have another person asking me to write a book. Another person asking me to write a book. It's insane. We know you cannot do 14 things and do a quality. But I know something about me. I don't know why. Ask my therapist. Don't have one, need one. Why do I feel the need to be loved by so many people? Why do I feel the need to do B-plus quality work when I could do two things? Like Jim Collins, good to yeah. great, built to last. He writes one book every six years. You don't hear from him for two years. He says yeah. no to $100,000 a day, every yeah. day for a yeah. year. He, yeah. he does not make $6 million this year because he says no to all his keynotes, and he goes and he writes a blockbuster. He, he is ask him that question. I have not learned that yet. What I know is I crave validation too much right now. And maybe because I wasn't getting my corporate job, which is why I've retired in good standing from Franklin Covey. And I'm still, you know, an ambassador for the firm and the brand, love them dearly. But I do struggle with this. I struggle a lot with this. A, because I have a service mentality. I like to give back to people. See, I'll do the first podcast because I know the first podcast is always the most listened to because everybody starts with one. Even if it fails, I'll do the first one. I'm just, I'm just picking up John Acuff's scraps, everybody. You'll do the first one. Would you do the third one? Well, there often isn't a third one. Is there yeah, point? exactly, exactly. You don't, you're picking up John Acuff's scraps. Please, you're playing tennis with Deepak Chopra. I don't want to hear it. Can I tell you something, people? Listen to me. Finish is one of my favorite books. If you, if you follow my podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, you know it's on video and all of John Acuff's books are on my wall. I highly recommend you buying and reading the book, Finish. It haunts me like freaking Jiminy Cricket, people. I can see two of my books behind you right now. You've got Finish and Soundtracks right next to each other. That's so funny. Well, I love that. I love the honesty of that. Yeah, I, I have the same thing. I'm not good at saying no. I'm trying to get better at that. I do see a therapist and love it. I've seen therapists for years. It's been instructive and helpful um, and I'm, I feel like I'm able to workshop things. I think that people change often one of two ways, um, by joy or by a crisis. And I'd rather change by joy. So when I feel like there's a, a new joy I want to try, I try to you know plug into that. We talked a little about the Master Mentors book. Who are some of your mentors? So people that maybe it's a, a mastermind group, maybe it's you know a friend that you get coffee with that's 20 years ahead of you, or who in your in your regular life, Scott regular life are your mentors? Uh, many people. Um, Seth Godin has been a massive mentor in my life for decades. He's an iconoclast, right? I mean, he's very clear on saying no. He says no to everything, everything. I have to ask him eight times. Bob Dole was a big mentor of mine. George H.W. Bush. I served on uh, Vice, Pre or Vice President George Bush and Senator Quayle long before you were born, John. I worked on their campaign back in the 80s and uh, President George H.W. Bush was a big mentor of mine. Stephen Covey was a mentor. But let me tell you, I'll answer your question a little bit differently this way. I'm actually writing a book on mentoring for HarperCollins right now, how to be a mentor. Mm. And I don't think you have to know your mentors. I think this is a misnomer that the mentor is the ah, CFO okay. on the sixth floor or your mentor is the lawyer down the street. Most of my mentors don't know I exist. Mm. I've been to their conference. I listened to their radio program. I've read their books. They have no idea I'm alive. They're, long before John Acuff was conceived, there was a man who really established talk radio called Bruce Williams. And he was a businessman back in the 70s and 80s that had a nighttime television show. Back when Sally Jesse Raphael was a radio host. 
And I used to listen to Bruce Williams every night from 6 to like 9 p.m. Nerd alert as a junior high school student. And he was an entrepreneur and a city council member and a lawyer. And people would ask questions about how to buy a mortgage and how to buy a home and how to launch a business and kind of like, you know, a business version of Dave Ramsey 40 years ago. He's a huge mentor of mine. He passed about a decade ago. I never met him. doesn't know I'm alive. Bruce Williams was my mentor for 10 years every night from 6 to 9 p.m. on talk radio. So I have lots of mentors that I ski with and I eat with and I lunch with and I reciprocally mentor them. I love it when Seth Godin calls me and says, hey, talk to TED Talk. They need some ideas around how to launch a corporate side of their business, right? And no bigger honor, but... Don't limit yourself by identifying people as mentors just because you don't know them or they say no or you can't find them. I think, I think that's great feedback. I would say Stephen Pressfield, we've emailed, but we, we've never hung out, and he's definitely been a mentor to me. And, and Bruce Williams spoke to you probably more than most people in your life if you're listening to three hours. So I'm curious, back to childhood, were your parents – goal oriented like did you come out of the womb with like a checklist and you're like let's go like i get me out of this this hospital i got some things to do how did you fall into that you know i live in salt lake city utah but i'm born and raised in orlando florida raised in a very kind of prototypical caucasian middle class family in the 70s my father worked a you know career job for 32 years my mom was a full-time homemaker parent to my mother to my brother and i I was not raised in wealth. I was not raised with, I, neither of my parents went to college. They were hard workers and, and fine people. They still live in the same house that they got married in 58 years ago. John, I'm going to see them tomorrow, actually, going to Orlando tomorrow to oh, awesome. check on mom and dad, make sure they're okay. I wasn't raised that way. I was raised with good old-fashioned values, admit your mistakes, hard work, an abundance mentality. Can I share a short story with you? I'd love that. I'd love that. I think the reason why I set goals in life was um, a, a life of service. My grandmother, my dad's mother, in Minnesota, her husband died when her twin sons were 10. My dad was 10, and his dad died of cancer. She was widowed with two twin boys that were 10. Five years later, my father's twin brother caught polio back in the 50s and spent decades in an iron lung, and eventually he succumbed. My father was Catholic. My father's mother was Catholic. And the Knights of Columbus, which you may have heard of, is a fairly well-known Catholic service organization. The Knights of Columbus came by, came by my grandmother's home, and they offered to pay for the iron lung for my dad's twin. Now, she was a widow working as a lunch lady in the local high school cafeteria. I'm getting emotional because this is a powerful story. And she said, no, I can afford it. Go next door. The Lutherans can't afford it. Now, you know anything about Minnesota in the 50s? The Lutherans and the Catholics walked on separate sidewalks to school. Mm. And my grandmother was a tough German lady who was widowed. She had a son who was in an iron lung dying from polio. And she said, go next door. They can't afford it. My grandmother could not afford it. She somehow scraped the money together. And I heard this story when I was about 15 years old. She used to come and visit us in Florida. I remember the bed I was sitting on when my grandmother told me this story, like with German humility, and it changed my life. And I just thought, you know, my life needs to be about that. I have goals. I want a nice car. I want a cabin in the woods, which I don't have. I want to send my kids to good schools. At the same time, 
you know, I want to not take more than my share. I want to give back more than I take. And so that has had an impact on my work ethic, on my constant need to live my life, not through I have to or I ought to, but I get to. Mm-hmm. And Nick Vujicic is a good friend of mine. I know you know who Nick Vujicic is. He's the, sure. you know, the gentleman who's born with no limbs and an amazing force in my life, been in my home as many times. And whenever I see Nick, it just eviscerates my issues. He has no arms and no legs. And he's a force to be reckoned with. Whenever I'm feeling down or having a pity party or not finishing something, dreading taking out the garbage cans at night, I think I get to take the garbage cans out. Nick Vujicic cannot take out the garbage cans. And so it's a long story to say thank you, Agnes Miller, and thank you, Nick Vujicic, for the impact you've had on my life every day to say, not I have to, not I ought to, but rather I get to. I get to get up at four and write. I get to have a high courage conversation with a colleague. I get to terminate someone because it's not working out for them or for me. I get to shovel the yard because I actually have two arms. That's kind of where I get my energy and motivation. That's, that's powerful. That was a crazy when, train. No, no, no. That was, that was exactly what I wanted to hear. I assumed you don't get to tell that story on every podcast. So I'm honored that you, that you told it to me. I don't, only with my friends. What are the fears that you face when you think about how much you have going on? You listed out, you did like a laundry list of like, here's the 12. You're obviously not stopping or paralyzed or, or worried. It doesn't seem like you're outwardly worried about that. How do you push through some of those fears? Is it that you go, you know what, John? I do today. I do today. Like the general manager of the Washington Nationals, Dan Pink, I just interviewed him the other day. It's funny you mentioned him, said, go 1-0 today. One and zero. That's what I'm doing today. I'm going one and zero. What do you do when you bump into some fears? Because I think it'll be easy for people to listen to this podcast and go, "This guy's a machine. He's getting up at four a.m. Like he doesn't have a fear in the world or a concern." But when you bump into them, what what do you do in response? Was it Brian Tracy that wrote the book Eat the Frog? Is that yep. Brian Tracy? Yep. Yeah. And so you know, the big idea there is you know you kind of do the hard stuff first. You take on the hard stuff, and and I I try to live my life. I, I recognize that. Issues neglected become bigger and haunting issues. They never go away. (laughs) Tough conversations with your neighbor, issues with your mother-in-law, you know, whatever it is, the stuff does not go away. It does not shrink. You've got to tackle it. I have a lot of high courage conversations with people I make promises to. I like to make and keep commitments. Part of my reputation is both making and keeping commitments. Is that integrity? Is that the I and Phil Powell? Uh, there you go. I'm sure. Okay. I'm sure it is, right? Um, look at you. Remember my remember, remember my acronym. Right? Thank I'm you, listening. Sir. Reflective you, listening. That's Thank what you, I did. Sir. It's counseling. One of the attributes of a trusted person is they do what they say they're going to do, including if they have to deprive themselves from some pleasure, if they have to work harder in the evening. By the way, I have a balanced life. I have three boys that I'm raising to be gentlemen with my wife. I serve in my faith community. I have, a, I have a marriage that my boys are trying to destroy every day. I swear their plot is to end my marriage. I have three sons that are seven, nine, and 11. And to my wife's whore, they have my personality. We're convinced they plot every night in the attic. How do we kill their marriage today? So, so funny. It's so true, right? We, 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 we have to regird every morning to make sure they don't succeed. Yeah, we're on the same team here. Let's go. We're, we're link Exactly, arms. exactly. Yeah. Bring it on, kids. Yeah. <laughs> we're stronger so than you. Uh, I like to make and keep commitments. I'm mindful of when I overcommit. And if I do, I raise a red flag. 
I call my editor and say, I got to tell you the truth. I'm going to talk straight with you. I'm going to be six days late. And here's what happened. And so I find that transparency and vulnerability is such a, a lubricant for trust, right? Is that they know where I am. I'm very clear on it. So I probably should make less commitments, but I am uber responsible on keeping commitments. And adjusting when, when you can't and following up quickly. And telling the truth, not concocting yeah, some truth. cover story, calling yeah. up and saying, you know what? I did this and I spent too many days in California and I only wrote four chapters versus 14 because my son yeah. was having an issue, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the story is. Right. And I just oh. tell the truth or I was having an issue. Yeah. I think I could talk to you for hours and hopefully when I'm in Salt Lake at some point, I'll be able to do exactly that in person. I only have four questions left. You've said high courage conversations a couple of times. I think that one of your strengths is reframing things. So a lot of people would say, conflict, conversation, terrible conversation, hard conversation. And you say a high courage conversation. Are there other examples in your leadership in your life where you reframe something? And it's often by words. Well, that's, that's the definition of, of empathy. That's the very definition of having a leadership competency, which is being an empathic listener is listening to someone and perhaps even reframing it in words that work with your vernacular but they restate their point. I, I tell you, John, I think I spent my 30-year career in leadership development and as a leader and a writer and a speaker. I think the most important leadership competency of every leader, whether you are leading one person in your side hustle or eight people in your startup or 800 people in your company, it's giving people feedback on their blind spots. This is your biggest gift to your people is having high courage conversations with them about their blind spots. Now you gotta balance that courage with diplomacy and consideration. I tend to err on the side of courage and sometimes I have a deficit of diplomacy. I have to be mindful of that. I wanna lead people better off than when I found them. But I also wanna give them the gift of, I'm seeing some things in your life that perhaps you're not aware of that you perhaps could work on or think about. So I do a lot of reframing, not to reframe my intent, but to make sure I say it in a way that they can hear it in a non-defensive manner. Because no one wants to hear that their dress code isn't up to par. No one wants to hear that their breath doesn't smell good. No one wants to hear that they're not collaborative or they're too defensive. So you've got to build trust with people. So you create the conditions to give them feedback. But reframing, I think, is a responsible leadership skill as long as your intent is pure. Because we all, have, we all have nefarious intent. Even the best among us have some hidden agendas. So don't reframe it to manipulate. Don't reframe it to, you know, posture or position. Reframe it to make sure that it's said in a way that both of you hear and feel the same thing. I, I love that. Next question. You've got a book coming out, Communication Mess to Influence Success, comes out in June of 2023. Um, as a public speaker, I love that topic. I geek out about that topic. What do you think are the elements that make for a good speech? For a good speech? Good speech. Well, first, no PowerPoint. Put down the keynote and put down the PowerPoint. And stop having your speech be dependent on visuals. There's a time and a place. There's a time and a place. But I think what makes a great speech is you ask yourself, you know, what do I want them to know and feel and do? Who are they? What are their needs? What do they need to get out of this? And can I tell a story 
Can I bring a story to life with my cadence, my voice, my rate, my tone, my pitch, my pacing? Can I show some vulnerability? Here's a good example, John. I'm a stutterer. I have a lifelong debilitating stutter. I've had braces four times, headgear. I'm in Invisalign, like literally right now. Mm -hmm. I have two speech therapists. I've been a stutterer my whole life. There are 45 words I cannot say in public, and it doubles or triples in the wintertime. Comes out like, and so there's a time and a place when I might share that, not gratuitously. But if I'm talking about vulnerability or a topic that's related to the audience, then I'll get very tender and talk about some of my own issues. I think what makes a great speech is deciding what is your story. Can you paint a vision of both what is and what could be? Can you transfer your confidence to them? You know, Donald Miller is a good friend of both of ours. You know, he talks about how it's so important that your client, your customer, your, your participants see themselves in your message. They see their, their journey, their struggle, their triumph in your speech. And then you decide, is there some visual that could support that? A picture, a slide, maybe two slides. I think most people prepare their speeches with a, a deck of white paper. They start sketching out all their slides. That is the last thing you should do. You should first decide, what do I want to communicate? And are there any visuals or words that are necessary to make that memorable? The long answer, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I, that could be its own book. entire book. book that comes out <laughs> June of 2023. Second to last question, what four books would you put on your Mount Rushmore? Yeah, absolutely. this is easy for me. My favorite book of all time is Zoom. Z-O-O-M. It's written by, I think, a Romanian um, uh, uh, cartoonist named Istvan Biani. It has no words in it. But it's the most powerful book you've ever not read. I've never even heard of it. You've got to buy it. It's up on my wall somewhere. It's called Zoom, and it's all about perspective. It's okay. all about suspending judgment and understanding that you may not have the full picture. You may not have all the facts. There may be more information you're not aware of. Zoom is number one. Another book written by a woman named Anna Quinlan, A Short Guide to a Happy Life. It's extraordinary. A Short Guide to a Happy Life. I think Liz Wiseman wrote the best leadership book of all time. It's called Multipliers. If you are a leader of people, you must buy Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers. The whole concept is, as leaders, all of us are both multiplying and accidentally diminishing people at the same time. You aren't either a multiplier or you're a diminisher. We're doing both. And that her research shows there are nine types of accidental diminishing tendencies. The idea fountain, the pace setter, the optimist, the perfectionist, the rescuer. You get the point. And the yeah. more that you can identify when you are doing that to your people accidentally, what does it look like, feel like, then you can minimize that and create more multiplying moments to be not the genius, but rather the genius maker of others. That's, that's perfect. Those, those three have not been mentioned yet. There you go. I got more. I got more, but that's good. That's good. All right. You got a wall behind you. We'll take a photo after because I'm going to post this. Um, last question. It's an easy one. Or no, second to last question. What uh, three best mountains to ski in Salt Lake City, starting with best to third? When Depends on what you want. For me, it's Deer Valley. You have to oh, yeah. mortgage your home to buy a ticket, but it sure. is luxurious. 
There are groomers. the snowboarders. Beautiful groomers. It's just the groomers. So Deer Valley is one. I think Solitude is an unknown mountain. It is stunning. It's on the it's on the yeah. Wasatch side. It's on the Salt Lake City side. But Solitude is just beautiful. Majesty of the trees and the sky. I love Solitude. Um, I'll tell you, Sundance is a hidden gem, right? The resort uh. formerly owned by Robert Redford. It's it's not a very competitive mountain, but just the the beauty of the the cabins and the runs and the yeah. and just Sundance is gorgeous. So I'd say Deer Valley, Solitude, and then Sundance. Ah, I'm surprised Snowbird didn't crack the top. Well, so three. it depends. I mean, Snowbird and Alta are for you know your expert skiers, but I mean yeah. it's not luxury, and you know. It, no, Snowbird is not no, luxury, not hardly, dude. So whenever yeah. my wife doesn't ski, and if we ever go to Snowbird, she's like, "Oh, I can't wait to hang out at the Concrete Lodge." I know, but you got to understand, I'm a pansy skier. I like to ski above 35 degrees. I like to ski four runs, a glass of champagne. Ski four <laughs> runs. I like to ski, I have some well, chili. Well, Deer Valley, dude. You go to Deer Valley, right, exactly. You're, you're taking that vernacular or whatever up yeah, to the top of that. Yeah, vernacular, right, up to St. Regis. You've been there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. That's I mean, this amazing. is the same guy that called it a, a Brussels griffin, people, right? I know, I know. Jeez, I'm such a redneck. Who know, like, I live in Tennessee. I, I play a banjo, apparently. I don't know what to tell you, Scott. Oh, man, it's embarrassing. My roots are getting out there. Okay, last question. Where can people find out more about you? Where? Because there's definitely going to be people that are like, oh, man, I want to geek out some more about Scott's books, his podcast. Where can people go? Well, that single person can visit me at scottjeffreymiller.com. That is my website. You can Google me. I'll come up. Uh, there's lots of Scott Millers, but there's very few Scott Jeffrey Millers. And so you can subscribe to our podcast at franklincovey.com and follow me on, on every social platform, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I'm everywhere, unfortunately, Perfect. my wife says. That's so funny. Perfect. Well, man, this has been such a pleasure. Um, I knew it would be. I knew as soon as we got talking that we'd have a really fun conversation. I appreciate your practicality, vulnerability. You're holding up one finger. Stand by because John Acuff, you heard it here has agreed to come on Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast with me, and he's agreed to be featured in HarperCollins Master Mentors Volume 3. I'm going to put you either right before or right after Mel Robbins. I got to decide. I love it. I, yeah, that is the easiest agreement in the world, 100%. And we'll go ski four runs, and then we'll stop and ski four runs. <laughs> I, I am so in. Scott, thank you for doing this. We'll do a quick photo right after this, but I really appreciate it. And if there's anything I can ever do to launch you to more people, you just let me know because I just think did. Thank you, John. Are so great. Thank you, man. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Scott Miller today. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. We're over a thousand reviews now. That's on iTunes or Apple or I don't I don't know the name of it. Just wherever podcasts you listen to. I don't think Spotify does reviews. Um, so if you're on Spotify, you're just enjoying a review list life. But thank you, everyone who listens on a platform that does reviews. So helpful. I really appreciate it. So please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days. And please write a review. Don't forget, visit www.leader.com to set up a custom demo for your team today and discover why more than 600 organizations are already using Leader to track goals and develop their teams. Use promo code ACUF to take 20% off. See you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. 
To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.